Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hey, everybody. Host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbbVie. In each episode, Nora has a real conversation with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they took action to understand this disease. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start Embracing the Journey and learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. Hey there, everyone. It's me, Josh. And for this week's SYSK Selects, I've chosen Can We Treat Mental Illness with Psychedelics? Spoiler alert, the answer is a big, big yes. This is one of those neat pieces of history where things just kind of fell out of place for something important. And we also have the rare luxury of seeing where it went wrong and exactly who was responsible. So enjoy this really interesting episode of Stuff You Should Know. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Whoa, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles Cheech Bryant. Cheech, yeah, man. Yeah. I wanted to start this one out like a 12-year-old, so that's what I'm going with. A 12-year-old on acid, maybe. Maybe, which has happened before. In France, actually. Really? Thanks to our old friends the CIA. Oh, they dosed kids? They dosed the whole town. Wow. To see what would happen. And one kid came at his grandmother and tried to strangle her. Really? Yeah, I can't remember the name of the town. I, I can see why you would find it. that funny. But, um... <laughs> Well, no, people were, like, showing up at the hospital. Right. There, there, a lot of it was funny. Yeah, sure. In that, like, you know, all these 1950s Frenchies are right, like, right. losing their stuff for no apparent reason. Right, right. But, you know, the the suicides that resulted yeah, not funny. from that, not very funny. Before we get started, I think we should do, like, an official COA for this one. Ah, I think that is a very good idea. Because what Josh and I are about to talk about are illegal drugs... But uh, we just find it fascinating that they used to be used for certain things, and they're starting to be used again in certain scientific uh, research labs for these things. It is extremely fascinating, which is what we're talking about, right? Exactly. I guess but, this could be a follow-up to our, our MK Ultra cast. It's a follow-up, and uh, it's an epilogue and a prologue. Yes. Yeah. Very nice. Because we kind of came into the the CIA LSD MK Ultra podcast, like right in the middle. Yeah. Of the history of LSD, pretty yeah, yeah. much. Well, we toured the beginning, but um, one of the things after 1943, when uh, Albert Hoffman, right? Yes, the chemist who created LSD, LSD 25, tried it. Yeah, it was his 25th attempt. Yeah, uh, and uh, tried it on himself intravenously, as I understand it. He injected it. Well, yeah, it says at first he took it by mistake. Yeah, because it was a blood thinner. And then he took it for real. Yeah. On purpose. After that first bike ride home, he was like, got to do some more of this. Can I read his quote? Please. I became aware of the wonder of creation, the magnificence of nature. Yes. The create Dr. Hoffman. Yeah. 
And he was just some Swiss guy, yeah. some chemist. Um, he was not the first person to come up with a synthetic hallucinogen. Back oh, really? in 1914, a German chemist who worked for Merck, the pharmaceutical company, uh-huh. came up with MDMA, better known really? as ecstasy. That far back, huh? Yeah. And here's a tip for you, Chuckers. Um, anytime, according to the Associated Press, you write about a designer drug mm-hmm. and use it by its designer name, you capitalize it. So ecstasy is always capitalized. The word ecstasy? When you're talking about the the drug, yes. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. And not just the euphoric feeling you get from life. That's different. Yes. That's lowercase. <laughs> okay. But it should be all caps. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so uh, it was 1914 that MDMA was created. That's Chuck. crazy. Yeah, and it was, um, I guess it, it served as a, I, I, it's not a catalyst because I think it's changed, but it was to be used in the synthesis of other chemicals. Right. And it kind of sat on the shelves for a little while until somebody... Along the way, and said, then trans I wonder music? what, what oh. happens <laughs> if I take this stuff. Yeah. And they did. And the CIA, again, looked at it, wanted to see what it could do, passed it up. Um, and a guy by the name of Alexander Shulgin, right? Yes. He's a Dow chemist. And in 1978, at the age of 74, he published a study on the euphoric effects of MDMA. It was the first time anyone had ever published a study. What on year? It. 1978. Wow. But he was 74. And he first noticed the euphoric effects because he liked to take it and go to cocktail parties. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah. Um, so he's like, hey, man, this stuff is the bomb. Yeah. And here's my study on it. Here are the, my findings. And let's everybody start taking this. So he, he starts giving it to his friends, um, including some psychiatrists. Did he give out pacifiers? Not yet. Okay. That, that's coming, though. That's very, very close. 1978, pacifiers came about 1988. Okay. Um, so Shulgin gives some to a friend who's a psychiatrist. Right. Psychiatrists, some of the more avant-garde psychiatrists, sure. um, start giving it to their patients. And it, it gets called Adam for a little while. While this is going on, it's being used by established psychiatrists, a mysterious financier in Dallas, Texas, finds out about this stuff and okay. starts taking it, hires an underground chemist and has it made himself and then starts selling it at clubs all over Dallas. And so this uns- uh, this illicit use of this substance, simultaneous to its uh, emergence on the club scene right. in about the mid-80s, led to the outlaw of MDMA. We'll get into it more. Yeah. But... The point is, to this very long and rambling intro, both of these drugs and others were legal at one time. Yeah, sure. Were put to good use, beneficial use, and then outlawed, possibly unfairly, and then now we're starting to see them come back into use. Hallucinogens being used to treat mental illness and mental harm. In legitimate circles. Very legitimate. Quick question. Was that uh, Dallas person, was that Cowboys owner Jerry Jones? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows who it is still. Got his start, maybe? Yeah, probably. I think he had some Dota to begin (laughs) with. So, Josh, you mentioned the CIA. I do want to point out it wasn't just the Americans. Uh, The uh, Canadian government and British's... uh, British's? (laughs) It works. Britain's MI6 uh, also experimented with LSD. And between 1950 and 65, 40,000 people all over the world had been treated with LSD. Yeah. 
in, in treatments. Yeah. Um, Cary Grant. Yeah. Can we go back to Hollywood? Yeah. In, in the 19, uh, what year was this? 1950s? Uh-huh. So a couple of guys set up shop. Arthur Chandler. What was the other guy's name? Oh, Hartman? Hartman. Mortimer Hartman, who was a radiologist, took acid Hartman. and said, you know, I'm going to get into psychiatry. Yeah. These guys set up a shop called the uh, Psychiatric Institute of Beverly Hills. Yep. Right in the middle of Beverly Hills. And this is back in the day when things were, there was clean living going on, aside from the rampant alcoholism <laughs> and cigarettes being smoked. Yeah. Adultery. Probably some marijuana use going on. Here, there, but that was among the hop heads. Yeah, exactly. So he uh, sets up a couple of rooms with a couch and uh, starts booking patients mm-hmm. at a rate of like six or eight hours a session, Yeah, depending on what was going on with the person. And five days a week, they were booked solid. hundred bucks a pop. hundred bucks, which is a lot of money back then. Sure. And I guess that included the drugs. The drugs and the time that you were there. Right. Yeah. So they would sit with you. They would give you some blinders uh, to block out distractions, mm-hmm. and then you would go into sort of like the more meditative uh, sort of acid trip, essentially. You were tripping, tripping hard because <laughs> you were on pharmaceutical-grade LSD produced by the Sandoz Company. Yeah. We're talking about uh, Aldous Huxley, uh-huh. novelist. Yeah, And Who actually, else? he died tripping. Did you know that? Really? Yeah. He, was, he had um, throat cancer, I think. And uh, the last thing he ever wrote was a note to his wife requesting um, such and such milligrams of LSD or micrograms of LSD injected intramuscularly. Really? And that was about six hours before he died. So he died tripping. And a Grateful Dead record. That was his last request (laughs) before the Grateful Dead was around. Chucking. (laughs) Uh, Screenwriter uh, screenwriter Charles Brackett Mm -hmm. took it. Uh, director Sidney Lumet. Is it LeMay or Lumet? Uh, Lumet, I think. Okay. I always said LeMay, but I think I'm wrong. He took it a few times, went through sessions, called it wonderful. He re-experienced his own birth, mm-hmm. which a, apparently a few people, people did. did. I'd never heard of that. I haven't either. And um, uh, Claire Booth Luce was a playwright married to Time Magazine publisher Henry Luce. She was also an ambassador and yeah. possibly an agent um, for the U.S. government. And they Secret both... Government took acid so yeah. much that Henry Luce in Time Magazine said, we need to write about this. This is awesome. Yeah, there's a lot of good press that Time Magazine gave LSD in the 50s um, as a basically a cure-all. Um, and uh, again, Cary Grant got into it big time. And apparently he had like a, at least 100 trips, I believe. Yeah, he was. Yeah, let's talk about him for a second because he was one of these guys that carefully constructed his persona mm-hmm. he worked very hard at, at, apparently he he was the 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 line he always gave was a lot of people want to be cary grant and i'm one of them yeah indicating that this suave mr cool persona was completely fabricated and created by himself mm-hmm. so he could get you know the fame and everything right but deep down he suffered as a human <laughs> <laughs> Until he started taking acid. Right. And then he had, um, well, he had some pretty interesting revelations, one of which I read, one of the, somebody thought to write down the stuff that he, some of the, the insights he had. Um, some were kind of deep. Others were like, uh, if I have to look at a man, he should be required to um, comb his hair and brush his teeth and wear a <laughs> clean shirt. 
That was an acid revelation? Yes, it was. Interesting. So it kind of ran the gamut. But yeah, he um, he became a real devotee oh, yeah. of LSD. He, he saw and his ex-wife, could, too. Yeah. Betsy. Uh, and, um, well, she got him into it, right? I think so. Who wrote that we're, we're part of this? We're basing this part on a Vanity Fair article. Yeah, that just really came good out. article. Yeah. Um, it's called uh, Carry in the Sky with Diamonds. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he was a huge advocate for LSD. He wasn't the only one. No. Um, but he lived to see it outlawed and public sentiment turn against it, right? Yes. Just like MDMA, um, psilocybin, magic mushrooms. And part of the, well, really, one of the, you could say that Timothy Leary almost single handedly led to the tremendous suffering of a lot of people who might otherwise have been helped by LSD. Yeah, ironically. With his, his naive bravado yeah. of, you know, the establishment just needs to get over its hangups and we should all take acid. Yeah. Whether or not you agree that that's a good idea, it's a stupid thing to say. Sure. Leary was originally a Harvard psychiatrist, right? Yes. And he started taking, I think, mushrooms. And then he eventually started taking LSD and was fired from Harvard because he turned into a hippie. Yeah. And um, that was pretty much the beginning of the end of LSD. Yeah, they may have continued to use uh, LSD as treatment for mental patients, mental illness and depression, if not for Timothy Leary, who was trying to spread the word about acid. That's right. Uh, back to Cary Grant real quick. He was so into it, Josh. He uh, had a couple of stories written about him in 1959 in Look Magazine. Yeah. The curious story behind the new Cary Grant gave a glowing account of LSD. And then, this is the best, the following year, the Good Housekeeping Magazine. It got the Good Housekeeping seal of approval in the 1960 issue, and they called it The Secret of Grant's Second Youth. Mm-hmm. I want to get a copy of that magazine. Yeah. How awesome would that be? Yeah, and that's kind of like the theme of this podcast. It's so weird that these things were considered incredibly wonderful and benign, um, and now they're they're just viewed as just so they're evil and they're outlawed yeah. simply because they were made illegal, right. they were prohibited, right? Um, and again. There's kind of a movement toward saying, hey, you know, maybe Timothy Leary did give this a bad name. Maybe that that um, underground chemist in Dallas uh, really kind of put a terrible spin right. on this, and we should look at these again, right? Can I tell one more story? Yes. From Hollywood of the 1960s? Yes. Uh, Esther Williams, famous uh, diva actress from the MGM studio, friend of Cary Grant's, called Cary Grant up after these articles and said, hey, can you introduce me to your doctor? Uh, Dr. Hartman, he did so. At the time, she was aging, just had gone through a divorce. Right. Uh, her husband left her with huge debt with the IRS, right. and she was still struggling with the death of her 16-year-old brother. She goes in the office, she takes acid, does her session, goes home to her parents, still on acid, uh, has dinner with them, and <laughs> then goes into the uh, bathroom mirror says goodnight to her parents, looks in the mirror, and I'm going to read this quote. I was startled by a split image, one half of my face. The right half was me. The other half was the face of a 16-year-old boy. Uh, The left side of my upper body was flat and muscular. I reached up with my boy's hand to touch my right breast and felt my penis stirring. It was a hermaphroditic phantasm, and I understood perfectly in that moment. When my brother died, I took him into my life so completely... He became part of me. Yeah. 
That's a pretty huge thing to understand and a pretty jarring way to come to terms with that, right? Yeah, but that's what they're finding out now, though, is that these people are having these breakthroughs in the throes of their final days of, let's say, cancer, and they have these epiphanies. everybody here's some bonus stuff you should know this time it's about traveling to orlando for business orlando has tons of places to host your conferences and meetings dr michael edwards ceo of ocean insight said it best orlando is as much a business capital as an entertainment one and when the day is done you can kick off each evening at one of 46 michelin rated restaurants what's not to love so check out orlando where the possibilities for business travel are unbelievably real Learn more at orlandoforbusiness.com. Hey everyone, host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbbVie. In each episode, Nora has real conversations with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they take action to understand the disease. That's right. Recognizing how a migraine attack can change the course of your day, she unpacks each guest's journey and how they talk to their doctors to find the treatment plans that are right for them. Yep. Along with headache specialist Dr. Christopher Ryan and other special guests, Nora speaks to these incredible people who've channeled their feelings of isolation in their chronic migraine journey into advocacy and art. Plus, there are also eight episodes of their first season available for you to binge. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start, embracing the journey as they learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. So LSD is outlawed. We're following a timeline here. Yes. LSD is outlawed in, I think, 65, something like that, um, at the very at the latest, 1970. Yeah, they shut down the shop in Beverly Hills. Yeah, and Sandoz stopped making it, and it, it, got, it was outlawed and pushed underground. Yeah. MDMA made it until 1985, and MDMA's story is linked very closely to a guy named Dr. George Requarte, uh, who is Johns Hopkins' researcher. This floored me. So in 1985, about the time the um, DEA is reeling from being caught totally unaware by the crack epidemic. Yeah. uh, And basically, a lot of people think looking for a whipping post. Sure. um, they, They start considering outlawing MDMA. At that moment, this guy, Dr. George Ricuarte, um, publishes a study that he says... This drug depletes your serotonin levels permanently, yeah. causing brain damage, right? It can kill you. Yeah. Well, it, that, that, didn't, that came oh, later. Oh, was that later? Yes. Okay. So this guy, who is unknown at the time, publishes this study, starts to get um, National Institute of Drug Abuse funding. So basically, yeah. this is his job. He, he starts a career um, creating scientific evidence yeah. in favor of banning drugs leads to the outlaw of MDMA, right? Yes. That wasn't quite enough. They, they scheduled it. Uh, the, the feds went after MDMA even harder. And in 2002, they came up with this thing called the RAVE Act. Uh, that's okay. It's, um, 
Oh, what does rave stand for? Reducing Americans' vulnerability to ecstasy. I wonder how long they <laughs> sat around looking at the word rave, saying we got to make it fit. Yeah. We got to make it fit. Yeah. So um, the, the Rave Act basically said if you are a club owner uh-huh. and somebody gets caught taking ecstasy or has ecstasy at your club, we're going to shut down your club. Right. It was a huge, huge law. And it was bolstered by another... Um, Another study by Dr. George Ricorde, um that found that he tested on 10 monkeys. Yeah, this is the big one. He injected them with MDMA. Um, a bunch of them went psychotic. Yeah. Some of them um, showed early signs of Parkinson's all of a sudden. Right. And two of them died almost uh, immediately after being injected. Yeah. So people started asking questions about this, like, what What are you talking about? People have been taking this drug forever, uh-huh. and this has never happened. Right. So they started kind of going after Ricorde, and um, they found out that he had actually injected them with methamphetamine, right. not well, MDMA. For, the first thing that tipped them off was that he injected them because people were like, well, you don't inject ecstasy, so that's kind of a weird way to do it. Right. And then they found out it was methamphetamines, which he blamed on a mislabeling of a drug shipment, mm-hmm. which they traced back, and they went, no, nah, the label right here. Yeah, the drug provider was like, don't blame us, pal. <laughs> it's pretty clear. So this is by this time, the Rave Act has already passed, or uh, the Rave Act didn't get passed, but something that included that right. um, was passed by that time. The study that Ricorde uh, produced was produ- was published in Science, the journal Science. Like, that's as, as yeah. highbrow as you get as far as scientific journals right. go. Right. Um, and finally, he gets beaten up enough that he he prints a full retraction. Yeah, he came clean. They, science runs this retraction saying, the whole, the whole study that I produced, right. just forget it ever existed. I bet that doesn't happen much. No, it doesn't. That's very unusual. Yeah. So Ricorde, I get the impression, is kind of this, um, well, it just kind of seems like the scientific community views him largely as a shill. For the government. I would say so. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of articles that he shows up in on uh, Reason, in Reason magazines we're checking out. Yeah, and you know, the other um, interesting thing about that whole story about the big fake study he did with met, uh, methamphetamines mm-hmm. as ecstasy mm-hmm. is that the Parkinson's Foundation, the people, Parkinson's researchers said, I don't think that that's true. That Not doesn't only, make much sense to us either that they would show signs of Parkinson's. Right. So they looked into it. People went about reproducing a study. Yeah. Um, and uh, the the people who run the Parkinson's Foundation actually issued a statement saying ecstasy does not do this. Yeah. So they, they basically came out in favor of ecstasy. It, it's kind of neat to watch from the outside because there's this guy who's, uh, again, kind of viewed as a shill yeah. for the government who's beating up on this drug that a lot of people who are also in the scientific community feel is being unfairly outlawed. Sure. And so there's kind of beating up on him in retaliation. Right. It's kind of neat to see eggheads beat up on one another. Yeah, nerd fights. Uh-huh. And uh, the NIDA, it went so far that the NIDA just kind of quietly pulled their fact sheet on ecstasy and was like, um, let's just take this down off the website. After the retraction yeah, in 2003. We'll rewrite it. I'm sure it's back up now. Sure. As something else. Yeah. But it doesn't include immediate death and Parkinson's disease, I would imagine. That's right. So Timothy Leary dies. He gets shot into space. He's out of the picture entirely. Everybody gets sick of hippies, generally. Yeah. Um, George Ricardes, the basically the guy who's single-handedly getting ecstasy outlawed, 
uh, his work comes into great, great question. Yeah. And people start going back and looking at MDMA again, and they start looking at LSD again. And mm-hmm. that's where we find ourselves right now. Yeah. Slowly but surely, people are starting to run studies on whether or not you can use these hallucinogens to treat mental illness, and the results are pretty astounding, actually. Yeah, and you know where they're leading the charge? In Switzerland uh-huh. and Los Angeles. Yeah. All these years later, same place. Yes. Hippie freaks. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Josh, they are, uh, I think, in Switzerland, uh, in Solothurn, Switzerland. They have been uh, experimenting with LSD, um, psilocybin, which you might know as magic mushrooms. Yes. Uh, ketamine, you might know as Special K. That kind of surprised me that that was in there. Yeah, that, I, I hadn't heard much about that one either. And they're getting these uh, these studies published in uh, Nature Reviews, Neuroscience, and other you know leading industry peer-reviewed publications. Right. Yeah. It's not all under-the-table backroom experiments. Oh, no, these are very heavily um, overseen. Uh, you have to be a very legitimate researcher to get yeah. uh, government approval. They're not funded, though, still. They're, they say they're still having a hard time with funding. Mm-hmm. And they're just sort of looking to get some restrictions loosened. They're not saying, make all this stuff legal. Right. They're not battling a legalization on the legalization front at all. No, but what they're, one, the reason why so many people are kind of starting to put their reputations on the line um, is because be, the results that they're seeing. So we have antidepressants, right? Yeah. Um, they take weeks to kick in. Sure. They have all sorts of side effects. Sure. And what they're... What, we're seeing in these studies now are that the the things like ketamine, uh, MDMA, LSD are having like a huge impact right out of the gate. Right. There's one study um, that came out in July, I believe, um, and it found it was a study of 12 people uh, who were diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, that's one of the big ones. Yeah, that's huge. That they're looking at. Um, that's where you it, well it's what we used to call shell shock it's, yeah. you, you go through a traumatic experience and you relive it over and over again um, and it's, it's debilitating um, they found that of the 12 people in this study 10 of them after going through the study mm-hmm. um, after taking MDMA no longer met the criteria to be diagnosed with PTSD afterward 10 of the 12 yeah and from my understanding in most of these studies is it's not like you have to stay on ecstasy your whole life. Like a lot of people right. have these epiphanies and they quit taking it and they have changed their outlook. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's the impression I'm getting too. Um, ketamine apparently is good for depression in the same way. Um, a, just a very tiny dose can get you over severe clinical depression or that's the results, the early results we should say. Yeah. Um, and everything from quitting smoking to... Suicidal thoughts. Yeah, cluster headaches. Yeah. Uh, Harvard studying like, those. Those are migraines for men, right? Uh, they what they call mig- men's it, migraines? I think so. I know they're so debilitating that you consider suicide, or, you know, not everyone does, obviously, but sure. it's just this awful, awful pain. You can't leave your house. You get to sit in a dark room. Mm-hmm. And so it's helping there. And the, um, what I thought was interesting, Johns Hopkins, you might have heard of them. Sure. A little reputable institution. That's where Ricuarte is from. Uh, was it? Uh-huh. They uh, did an experiment where they gave psilocybin to emotionally stable individuals. Like, mm-hmm. this wasn't even people that were mentally ill, people that had never taken hallucinogens before, which is interesting that you would be 
I think they had a 64 year old that signed up for this. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And they said, uh, ages 24 to 64. And they said the experiment a year later, they said the experience is one of the most meaningful and spiritual experiences of their entire lives. Yeah. And that, those were mentally stable folks. Sure. And this is a year on. Right. It still had an impact on them. Um, they're also finding that uh, OCD and basically yeah. um, mood disorders are the primary target of hallucinogenic treatment, right? Psychedelics for treatment. Yeah. And the reason being, we think, is because they target serotonin in the brain. This is another reason why they're not addictive. They don't, they don't employ the um, reward circuit in the brain, right. which is how we become addicted to things Right. We're flooded with dopamine, remember? It just affects the mood circuits, isn't that right? Serotonin. And we don't really have a very good grasp on serotonin and exactly how that works, but we do know that um, there's correlations between uh, high levels of serotonin right. or low levels of serotonin and depression. Right. Right? And we know that um, using antidepressants, which block the reuptake of serotonin, um, reduces symptoms of clinical depression in people. So we know that serotonin's in there somewhere. Yes. We know that the more serotonin you have, the better generally. Or low serotonin's bad. Right, right, right. Uh, and then we also know that hallucinogens target this somehow. That's pretty much where the research stands right now. Yeah. But it makes you wonder, where would we be if LSD and MDMA hadn't been in the wilderness for the last few decades? Well, yeah, they may have a pill like a low dose pill because mm -hmm. a lot of these studies just so you know back in Cary Grant's day I mean it was full mm -hmm. full on acid trips but a lot of these like the psilocybin pills they'll give you would be very low dose so I don't I get the feeling that it's not like this huge uh, mushroom trip that a lot of these patients are going through yeah. because it said I think 80% of the people uh, recognized when they did not have the placebo mm -hmm. so if it wasn't 100% <laughs> right. yeah. then it was probably a pretty low dose yes would be yeah. my guess. Um, would you, if, if, if everything was legalized mm -hmm. um, and MDMA came to be prescribed for uh, just happiness, right? would you take it? Would you take a happy pill that was legal and didn't have side effects? Not to say MDMA doesn't have side effects. There's a... Um, like basically the three days after sure. a depression that follows when your serotonin levels are repleting themselves. I don't think I would because there are quote unquote happy pills now. Uh -huh. And I'm, I mean, it's not like I'm against antidepressants or things like that because people definitely benefit from those who need them. Mm -hmm. But I, I just, I don't need that kind of thing. So I would not, uh, I would not, sir. You are not <laughs> alone, Chuck. There was a survey conducted for this BBC series uh -huh. on Britain of British people uh, that found that 79% of them said that they would not take a happy pill right. that was legal and had no side effects. That's interesting. Yeah, because it kind of, I think that for a large segment of the population, there's uh -huh. just the idea of synthesizing happiness is uh, untoward. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's it's a little weird. Yeah. I mean, that's not to say I'm a square and I don't like to get down. <laughs> uh, another aspect, Josh, I mean, we're, we're talking right now about literally the effect it has on your brain and your serotonin levels and your moods. Right. They've also found that uh, patients, cancer patients in particular, who consume hallucinogens uh, or people with just um, 
traumatic events from earlier in their life, they have the ability to relive some of these memories and events from their past. Right. They can unlock buried traumatic episodes, deal with them psychologically, put them to rest, mm-hmm. and come out the other side with a new understanding, free from these demons. Right. Um, you remember when in the hypnosis episode where yes. we were talking about uh, how the way it's viewed now is that you you are it's, you're accessing the subconsciouses yeah, yeah. more easily. Uh-huh. It's like popping open a uh, control panel. That's what this uh, this is what they're seeing with MDMA. Apparently, uh, you are able to access things um, from a very empathetic way. I think the the term I've heard for it is called um, a psychotherapeutic catalyst. Yeah, that like makes it sense. kickstarts right things and i think one researcher called it it's psychotherapy sped up yeah psychiatrist called it yeah it's like psychotherapy on acid (laughs) (laughs) hey there everybody here's some bonus stuff you should know this time it's about traveling to orlando for business Orlando has tons of places to host your conferences and meetings. Dr. Michael Edwards, CEO of Ocean Insight, said it best. Orlando is as much a business capital as an entertainment one. And when the day is done, you can kick off each evening at one of 46 Michelin-rated restaurants. What's not to love? So check out Orlando, where the possibilities for business travel are unbelievably real. Learn more at orlandoforbusiness.com. Hey everyone, host Nora McInerney is back for season two of The Head Start, Embracing the Journey, a podcast from Ruby Studio and AbbVie. In each episode, Nora has real conversations with real people living with chronic migraine to see how they take action to understand the disease. That's right. Recognizing how a migraine attack can change the course of your day, she unpacks each guest's journey and how they talk to their doctors to find the treatment plans that are right for them. Yep, along with headache specialist Dr. Christopher Ryan and other special guests, Nora speaks to these incredible people who've channeled their feelings of isolation in their chronic migraine journey into advocacy and art. Plus, there are also eight episodes of their first season available for you to binge. So jump into the conversation for season two, a show that creates a little more space for empathy and understanding in such a complicated world. There shouldn't be so much hesitation around asking questions and asking for help. So don't wait. Join the Head Start embracing the journey as they learn a little bit more about life with chronic migraine. LSD specifically hasn't been the greatest friend to everybody who's ever taken it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and what's funny in, in this article that um, that's on the site, Can We Treat Mental Illness with Hallucinogens, Tom Sheave Your buddy. has to go to the 60s psychedelic rock scene to find examples <laughs> of people who have had a bad bad time on acid. I know. Uh, and apparently what, what the conventional wisdom is, is if you are predisposed to mental illness, LSD can uh, exacerbate that. Yeah. If you have a bad trip, you're going to have a really, really bad trip because you're already predisposed to mental illness. Yeah, he's Brian Wilson and Sid Barrett as mm-hmm. the two examples. Yeah. And those are stellar examples. They really I are. i got to say. But they're also counterintuitive to what we're seeing with um, like PTSD. You are already suffering from a mental illness, 
So here's some MDMA. Right. Probably LSD would be horrible to give to a PTSD sure. survivor. Yeah, yeah. Right? I would say so. Um, and what else, Chuck? Can we talk about Pamela uh, Sakuda? Sure, yeah. It's a very interesting story. Uh, this was a woman, um, age 57 at the time of this article, who was in the final stages of uh, colon cancer. She had outlived her prognosis. She was anxious and depressed. She was worried about her family, her husband, and what they were going to do without her. It was not a good life she was living here at the end. And she was prescribed antidepressants, of course. It yeah. didn't work. Right. Didn't do a thing for her, so she volunteered for an experiment at UCLA in 2005 mm -hmm. and started taking psilocybin, the magic mushroom pill, right. in pill form. Yeah. She uh, had a lot of breakthroughs. Uh, they brought her husband in at the end of one of the sessions, and he said, there's my Pammy. She was just beaming with light, and I haven't seen her that joyous in so long. She was totally alive and happy, and uh, she continued to take it. Until she didn't need it anymore, she had these breakthroughs, and then all of a sudden her husband and uh, Pamela were going to concerts, they went hiking at the Grand Canyon, they went on vacations, they did all these things that she hadn't been doing uh, in a long time because of these epiphanies she had under the influence of psilocybin. Mm -hmm. And awesome. sadly, she died. Well, she had cancer. Yeah, she yeah. died, in, yeah, that's what she died from in 2006. And her husband uh, said it, uh, she died in his arms, but her husband was very appreciative. Uh, and they actually did a benefit about a week before she died mm -hmm. for the institute that was doing this work at UCLA. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, the, uh, definitely an a one of the applications that they're finding is end-of-life care yeah. for um, using MDMA or LSD or psilocybin. Sure. Or special K, apparently. What about this ibogaine? Mm -hmm. They're finding that ibogaine works really well. Ibogaine is a um, it's from a hallucinatory root plant in Africa, yeah. I believe. Uh -huh. um, and they're finding that you go on a thirty-six hour trip. That's a long time. <laughs> it is a long time. But they're finding that it's really effective in breaking um, addiction and like serious addictions too, like heroin. Yeah, and cocaine. So being on this stuff just for 36 hours creates a break in the addiction cycle itself. Sure. But what they're finding that's most notable about it is it there's a lack of withdrawal symptoms that you see in every other type of crazy. addiction removal. Yeah. Um, especially with heroin. Like heroin, you're supposed to have physical withdrawal, yeah. withdrawal symptoms. And people who are taking ibogaine are not experiencing that. Like they would if if they tried to kick the habit without it. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. It is very remarkable. It's very interesting. We should probably say, I don't know if we have yet, that this podcast is in no way an endorsement of going out and buying yeah. yourself some street drugs and, no, 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 no. you know, seeing what happens. It's a study of what we find to be very fascinating. Mm -hmm. The fact that this is there's been a resurgence in this and these, you know, qualified doctors, UCLA, Johns Hopkins... Yeah. They're saying we should look into this stuff. Yeah, and they definitely are, and they're getting some very <laughs> interesting results. What about the AA guy? We should mention that really quickly. That was pretty funny. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Bill Wilson. Yeah, one of the co-founders of AA. Yeah, he uh, he apparently took LSD in the 50s, was it? Yeah, and this was after he was, long after he was sober from alcohol. Yeah, because AA's found been it around AA. since the 30s, I think. Oh, had it? Yeah. Um, so he he takes LSD in the 50s and is like, this is really helpful. 
Um, so I think everybody who comes into AA should take LSD. <laughs> exactly. uh, and they were like, nee, you should probably right. not do that. Yeah, so so they, they talked him out of it. But the reason why he found it helpful one, is that hallucinogens, part of a 12-step program is to really reflect on past wrongdoings yeah. and then el- elucidate them right. to another human being. And apparently LSD, MDMA, um, these other drugs help. They serve as a catalyst for that process. To tap into that. That's why Bill Wilson thought this this is really helpful. Because, again, psychotherapy sped up. Fascinating. Very fascinating. I will say this, though. I'm going to go out on a limb and say even though we're not saying, oh, you should go out and do these things, I will say that some chemically created in a lab pill called an antidepressant Mm – isn't I mean, what's the difference? The difference is, I think, in my opinion, from what I've seen, uh-huh. uh, one's marketed and legal, and exactly. the other is illegal. Yeah, it's as simple as that. One is made by Merck, mm-hmm. and one is not made by Merck. But pu- Merck pub- used to make this stuff right, exactly. too, which is ironic. Public sentiment counts for everything. Yeah, you know. Oh, it's the same reason that alcohol—you can go into a bar and get completely wasted out of your mind and mm-hmm. get in a car. Mm-hmm. But you can't walk into a bar and smoke a joint. Or shoot heroin. Or shoot heroin. And we're not lobbying for anything. It's just interesting that the things that society has deemed acceptable, mm-hmm. alcoholism is just fine. Well, it's not just fine, but it's, it's legal and you can do it. Right. Even though it kills all these people, and this is not acceptable. It's just yeah. it's funny how we've evolved mm-hmm. to think some things are evil and some things are just great. Yeah. I wonder what the future holds, Josh. I wonder myself. We'll find out. Yes, we will. If we live that long. That is about it for this one. You should probably check out uh, Can We Treat Mental Illness with Hallucinogens on the site. Be sure to check out Carrie in the Sky with Diamonds. Great article. Vanity Fair article. Uh, type in George Ricuarte, R-I-C-U-A-R-T-E, uh, into Reason's website. That'll bring up some cool stuff. Yeah. There's a killer Time magazine article from I think 2000 or 2001 um, on ecstasy on MDMA. Uh, it was that's really it's called the uh, happiness in a pill. Uh, I guess it's time now for uh, listener mail, right? Yes. I have a listener mail, Josh, from Ria, and this was about octopus or yes. octopi. <laughs> we were corrected that octopi is not right, but she says it. Octopi is so right. Well, we had all these people saying, actually, the Latin thing. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Jerry just laughed at that. Uh, hi, guys. Your podcast on Octopi made my day today. Thank you. I work as an aquarist at a San Francisco aquarium, and one of my favorite responsibilities is, is our cephalopod gallery. Nice. Uh, I get to do enrichment with giant Pacific octopods, mm-hmm. make sure all of our eight-legged friends stay out of trouble, and I'm currently teaching uh, a two-spot octopus how to open a jar to get his favorite food, which is live crabs. I'm right there with you, Mr. Octopus. Uh, it was great to hear someone besides myself get a little too excited about these critters. And, you know, we got great feedback on this. People love the octopus. Mm-hmm. It's because they're so freaky. Uh, the story about Lucretia McEvil especially cracked me up. I work with a GPO, that's the giant Pacific octopod, Uh that might give her a run for her money. For the past few weeks, I've been walking around with what my colleagues call octopus kisses up the length of my arms, but I'm afraid my husband is getting a little suspicious about the number of hickeys I've been acquiring. (laughs) So that's from the little suckers. Right. 
Those little suckers. Clearly. Uh, these were given to me while I tried to remove the individual from blocking the flow to his tank and stop his flooding of the entire aquarium. It's never a boring day with cephalopods in your life, guys. Thanks for all the great podcasts. If you're ever in San Francisco, one of my favorite places, Josh. Yeah. Let me know, and I'll see if I can't work out some behind-the-scenes cephalopod goodness. Nice. And that is from Rhea. And she says, and don't worry, by the way, I have trouble pronouncing uh, hectocotylus as well, and have taken to calling in the sperm tentacle. Sperm tentacle works. The spermicle is what she says. (laughs) She says it's time to rename that organ. Yes. Well, thanks, uh, Rhea, right? Yes. Thank you. My dad always said life is better with cephalopods in it. Really? Yeah. Uh, If you have a fantastic saying that your father, mother, grandfather, some old-timey person told you, we want to hear it. Wrap it up in an email, spank it on the bottom, and then send it to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hey everybody, if you've been looking for love at first sight, it's closer than you think. It can be found at your local shelter. So this June 7th to June 9th, join the Pedigree Adoption Drive and the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. Pedigree knows that bringing a dog into your home not only opens their heart, it can open yours too. Visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions.